Hi, welcome to James Miller Lifeology, where you learn to simplify and transform your spirit, mind, and body. My name is James Miller. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and a composer. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Let's get started. I have a great show for you today. I'm going to help you make effective changes in your life. I'll also be interviewing business strategist and expert Ron Carucci, who gives you the tools and techniques to be an effective and long-lasting change agent in your vocation or organization. His book, Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives, is also available on Amazon or in my store at jamesmillerlifeology.com. This book will give you the roadmap you need to successfully climb the executive ladder. Purchase it today. I have some exciting news. Did you know that I'm on the radio three times a week? You may hear me on the same station on Tuesdays at 1.30 p.m., Fridays at 9.30 a.m., and Saturdays at 12.30 p.m. You may also hear me anytime on iHeartRadio as well as on all the other major podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and many others. Simply search for the show name, James Miller Lifeology. Are you struggling today to find your purpose? Has mediocrity set in and you can't imagine doing the same thing for the rest of your life? Are your relationships struggling or you aren't sure how to make long lasting changes in your life? Then today, contact me, James Miller. I will help you recognize the areas in your life that are going really well. And then we'll look at the areas in which you are struggling. We will create actionable solutions to help you create long lasting changes in your life. You don't have to do this alone. Go to my website, jamesmillerlifeology.com and click on the page, work with James. Fill out the form and it will be sent directly to me. Don't let another day go by without finding your way. Your change can start today. Once again, go to my website, jamesmillerlifeology.com and click on the page, work with James. Fill out that form to get started today. John was on his weekly walk with his mentor, Nathan, when he made the comment that he didn't want to work on developing himself anymore. They were walking past the river when John said, every week you tell me to learn something or grow in a particular area. To be frank, Nathan, I'm a bit sick of it and I don't want to change anymore. Why can't I just stay the way I am? Isn't that good enough? Nathan looked in the river and pointed out a dead fish. Tell me, John, what is that over there? It's a dead fish, Nathan. What has that got to do with me? What's the fish doing? It's floating downstream with a current, but what has that got to do with me? But the fish is dead. How can it be moving? Asked his mentor, ignoring his protege's frustration. It's moving because a river is moving, but what has that got to do with me? He asked again in exasperation. Nathan turned to the young man and said, life and even where you work is like the river. It's always changing and always moving. Some people don't want to change, but the reality of life is that they really are changing, just not in the way that they control. If you choose to resist developing yourself, your skills will atrophy, your attitude will become more negative, and you will become less useful to the world. You may think that you're not changing, but everyone else will notice a difference. So you have a choice. You can take action to control the change that you experience, or you can become a victim of the current, being changed in subtle ways that will inevitably impact your future negatively. But you need to remember that you can't choose to not change because change is inevitable. You can only choose to be a dead fish floating along or a live fish in control of its destination. John nodded his head in disappointment because he knew that his mentor was right. Be a change agent. We all have opinions of what people should say or do in certain situations, but unfortunately, we don't often do that ourselves. Many of us have goals and dreams of who we want to become and what we want to do, but often we put those dreams and goals so far in the future that it's one day I'll get to it. One day I'll do this. One day I'll change. One day I'll be this successful person. But just like the story that you heard in the earlier segment, life is going to change whether you want it to or not. It's always evolving, always moving and changing in very subtle ways. As you know, listening to the show for so long, I'm all about being productive. I'm all about being proactive and being able to be in front of the curve. So therefore you can control what happens in your life. 
So let's think about this. When you want to change your environment, when you want to change your work, when you want to change your relationship, what does that even look like? What is the difference? I always tell people, what's the role you're going to play? And when you can figure out what that role is, think of it almost like a job description. (laughs) For example, if you are wanting a different job, well, then you will know what the job description is and you tailor your life and your skill set to accommodate that. But in your personal life, what does that look like? Who do you want to be? It's important to create personality descriptors of how you want your life to change as well as where you see your life in the future. If that's financially, if that's exercise, health-wise, in your vocation, there are many different ways in which you can look at that, but it is important to create many different versions of what that is. And as you start to grow and develop, you now have a framework of where you're going to be. But remember, one of the most difficult things to do is consistency. When you're trying to make a change, you have to be consistent in your thoughts, in your actions, in your words, because that's going to give you a really good rubric. In other words, that's going to give you really good data to say, am I being consistent with this change or not? It's so easy for us to fall back into the person we used to be and often forget that change has to be consistent. I have a quick little tidbit for you. It takes 66 times for you to do something over and over again until it becomes a habit. So whatever it is you're trying to do, you have to do that multiple times before it becomes an intrinsic change within yourself. How do you present to the world? How do you change the environment in which you live? That can be at work, that can be in your relationship, that can be with friends, that can be at the gym, that can be in your neighborhood. It's important to realize that when you want to make a change, that change needs to be consistent everywhere. Think about it. When you're in a situation and you want to make a healthy, impactful change, what are you doing? When you leave that situation, take note. Did you enhance that environment or is it left the same? As you're making these changes, it's so important to get feedback. I actually just did a YouTube episode on this called How Mature Are You? So go to my website, jamesmillerlifeology.com, and you can hear the latest YouTube episode there. The true mark of maturity and development is when you can get constructive criticism or even just criticism in general and not justify or rebut your own behavior. In order to move and grow and develop in anything you do, you have to have feedback. We only know what we know, but we don't know how other people perceive us. And as we want a holistic change, we have to incorporate the opinions and the observations of other people. I have a fantastic guest today, Ron Carucci, who is a phenomenal business expert. He is going to use these same techniques, but he's going to apply them to business itself. So it's really important for those of you who are wanting to make a change in your business or maybe in your career or in your current organization, how to make an effective change. So this episode is a well-rounded version of emotional change, physical change, relational change, business, corporate change. All of these are tools and techniques that you can implement today. You don't have to wait until tomorrow. Be an effective change agent today. Ron Carucci is co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, working with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He has a 30-year track record helping some of the world's most influential executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. From startups to Fortune 10s, turnarounds to new markets and strategies, overhauling leadership and culture to redesigning for growth, he has worked in more than 25 countries on four continents. He is a best-selling author of eight books, including the recent Amazon number one, Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives, that he co-wrote with Eric Hansen. He's a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review and Forbes, and has been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, Business Week, Smart Businesses, and Thoughtful Leaders. Welcome to my show, Ron. James, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, that was such a mouthful, but that doesn't even touch all the expertise that you have. So I can't wait to, to, for you to share all your, your wisdom with my listeners today. I'm looking forward to it. Now, for how long have you been in the business industry? Gosh, about 30 years. 
Uh, it's been a long journey. Um, some of my earlier part of my career was spent inside corporations. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that uh, um, <laughs> your desire to create change inside a company you can, can get you into some trouble. I'm sure. And so, <laughs> yes. Yeah, an ancient prophet said you can't be a prophet in your own land. And so I learned <laughs> that what got me tossed out of companies got me paid well outside companies. Oh, so that's interesting, that, yeah. My passion and love for organizations was going to be best expressed by not being part of one. Oh, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting thought, you know, because I, I think that is true when people who are outliers, obviously to, to change any culture of, of any organization, we'll talk, to, talk about that in just a minute. But I think, yes, it would go against the grain in such a degree, then yes, they are going to be shunned, if you will. <laughs> it's, it's just part of the process of, you know, large communities of human endeavor want to accomplish what they want to accomplish. And there's a lot of beautiful things about that. But sometimes they don't want a mirror held up to them to reveal the dark sides. Sure. Sure, exactly. What type of industries were you in when you first started? Uh, uh, energy, um, technology, um, consumer products, yeah, a variety of them. I spent my, oh. my first five years of my career in a consulting firm traveling the world, oh working goodness. with the military and the State Department um, and uh, some nonprofits. So I've had a wonderfully rich uh, potpourri of experience. Oh my gosh, yeah, you certainly have. You know, when you first started out and you recognized that you wanted to make a change or you wanted to help improve the organizations for which you worked, what were some of the things that stood out to you? Because I think it's really important. I'm sure many people of my listeners uh, probably have the same qualities that you have, but don't realize that they could potentially be a change agent. What do you think are some of the things that really stuck out for you? And then we'll kind of correlate that with for my listeners as well. Sure. I think a couple of things. Um, one is you can only take somebody as far as you've taken yourself. Mm. So, so many people want to enter the field of change as a way to avoid their own change. Oh. Um, and so you have to make sure you've done your own work. You have to make sure that the, the narratives you want to rescript in other people, you have, to re- you, you have also changed your own. Uh, otherwise, you're just – it's just – well, t- you, know, you know this as a psychologist. It's just <laughs> nothing but a, a transference festival, yes, right? I'm yes. just – I'm just projecting my own change on other people and you, you, you become my cause. And so I think <laughs> it's important that people understand that as a great agent of change, you have to have gone the distance yourself. And so that takes some internal work yourself and just ha- holding that mirror up to yourself. And we all have blind spots, but that is yep. that ability to just say, hey, what, what is really going on in my own life? And let me make sure that it's in a broader spectrum as far as how it, how it appears in my business is definitely congruent with who I really want to be. Exactly, exactly. Those folks have done that work, as you so well described it, make the the best agents of change. Um, Secondly, um, the only people who like change are wet babies. (laughs) Mark Twain said that. That's right, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Other than than that, it's not really uh, – people love homeostasis. They want Mm -hmm. predictability. They want the status quo. Even change they say they want. They probably really don't. And so you have to understand when you enter a system of change, the complexities of what you're tampering with and really construct change in a meaningful way. And we we have code language in my firm uh, that called that says transformation happens on three levels. And we code language that within, between and among with change has to happen within individuals. So at their Mm -hmm. deeper deeper levels of their own psyche and their own narratives that have to get rescripted. Change has to happen between. So it has to, happens relationally, whether it happens between leaders, between people, or between departments, between the supply chain and manufacturing, between marketing and sales. That the seams of an organization, there's typically the fungus of conflict and unresolved uh, misalignment. And so change has to happen between. And then finally, change has to happen among, systemically. There mm-hmm. has to be change 
from in, from in governance. There has to be change in how you design the organization. There has to be change in the culture and the values. Um, and transformation only happens when you do change within, between, and among on all three. Wow. M- many transformations – uh, we, we know that the statistics tell us that 80% of most org change fails. And my guess is that uh, if you examined any one of them, you could find that one or two of those areas were done brilliantly and mm. flawlessly. But if you miss one of them, it can still it can still fail. Yes, it certainly can. Well, what do you think is a difference? So let's say you map out this change, this, this transformation in your organization, or we'll just, yeah, specifically an organization. You map it out, you execute it. Why do you think they don't last? Because let's say they'd say it was done really well, but why don't you think those transformations last? It's a great question, James. Well, part of it is uh, people declare premature victory. Mm. They stop well short of actually implementing the change. Most people in organizations confuse announcing a change with actually executing <laughs> that's a good. That's a really good point, Ryan. Um, and so they won't realize that I sent them – leaders get frustrated when they, they'll tell me all the time they lament. I sent the memo out. I did the video. We did the town halls. Mm. We, I did the tour. I went to all the plants. Why didn't it work? And, and I have to remind them, you, you, your journey of change began months and months before yeah. the work. So you were finished. They hadn't even started yet. And so the, the hard work to implement change, to follow through and see it through to its completion can take a year or two. Oh, my gosh. Um, I mean, you know, when you have hundreds or thousands of people that have to go on a journey, you just can't assume that you're going to sprinkle transformation pixie dust over them <laughs> and assume we're done. Yeah. You have to put metrics in place. You have to follow up. And the other thing I think is most difficult, James, is consequence management. Hmm. You, you have there has to be consequences for not going on the journey. If you've given people the chance to to participate, if you've given them the skills and training, they need to make the shift to something new. And they still don't do it. What they're telling you is this is no longer a place for me. And so many people love to join the This Too Shall Pass Club. Oh, yeah. Because it's failed before, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. It's failed before. Why would this one not not be the same? And so the the flip side of that is if there is a a series of failed changes in an organization, um, the most dangerous thing you can ask of an organization is hope. Mm. because nobody wants change more than the people suffering with the Mm -hmm. inadequacies of today. If you raise their hope one more time and you dash those hopes by not following through, that first of all, that's cruel. Yes, yes, it is. And second of all, you're really going to, people aren't going to quit and leave. They're going to quit and stay. Um, ah, which creates a whole cultural uh, struggle in that in itself. I mean, what, 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 what a worse place to work when you have no hope and there's no, you know, you've been lied to or, you know, so many times. Yeah. I mean, then you're, that's like the worst employee to it's, have. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, and, and dangerous. James. Yes. It's dangerous, right? So I always tell executives, if you're about to embark on this journey, be clear, be very clear. You intend to follow through, you intend to go the distance and you, and you absolutely just cannot let it fail. Do you think it's a planning yeah. process as well? Because you can, I mean, I think when someone um, has this great vision and they want to execute it, but they haven't thought it through all the way, maybe in all the different areas, is that another reason why it fails or why just individuals in general, um, just organizations just crumble with that if the change doesn't last? Very commonly, James, people don't do enough planning on the front end. They wing it. Um, they underestimate the complexity of changing a system when you're taking, you know, an entire enterprise or an entire department and you're tampering with the culture, the processes, the work products, the intersections, all the linkages. And what they do is you, you get very common rearrange the org chart days mm-hmm. where we just go, you know, um, on the back of an app and draw a new org chart. We, <laughs> we assume 
that by changing the hierarchy of the organization, I've now changed anything. And of course, nothing really changes. Um, the thing I tell my clients all the time, when you rearrange deck chairs on a Titanic, it still sinks. Oh, that's a really good um, point, Ron. <laughs> and uh, you know, just because everything's different doesn't mean anything has changed. You know, and I think it's the other part as well is sometimes, and then this is just my own elementary version of this, but I think sometimes when people do make that change, it's usually more from a, a, the top part of the hierarchy and they make the change. You know, they may have a couple employees that say certain things to them, you know, as far as um, insight into it, but it's not really made in the way from the ground up because the people who are the frontline staff or the people who do all the work, they don't, they're the ones who probably really need that change even more than the people who are the executives. I think the way we will look at it, James, is uh-huh. that if you think about an organization in three different sort of like think about a pipe that has three different intersecting parts of it. There's mm-hmm. a strategic system, there's a coordinating system, and there's an operating system. At the at the operating system are the people daily executing the work of the organization. The coordinating system are the people in the middle, middle classic middle mm-hmm. managers who are translating strategy into daily direction. And there's the people at the top of the house in the strategic system who are looking at the future, looking f- three to five years out and minding the, minding the store about need to change. Okay. So often you have an issue of compression. So you have people in the, in the strategic system actually doing the work a level below them in the coordinating system. So you create this compression where people are not able to act accordingly to their own, to the altitude they're playing at. Hmm. And so secondly, you have people, um, you have inadequate talent in one of those systems. So, you know, as direction gets translated into daily activity, um, you have people who aren't able to able to coordinate well. So the change has to happen in all three of those levels. The change looks different for people in the, in the strategic system than it does for people in the coordinating system or people in the operating system. But if you haven't got change for all three, it will get stuck. Wow. No wonder you're such an expert. I mean, when you said that, that made perfect sense to me. I was like, oh my God, yeah, that totally makes sense. <laughs> very, com- very commonly, James, people, you know, you, you see somebody from the coordinating system get promoted into the area uh, of the strategic system, but they bring the work from the coordinating system with them. Oh, wow. They don't, don't want to let it go. And they, and they justify it by saying, well, they're not ready to take it off. So I'll just keep doing it. And the real issue is they're afraid of letting go to do the work. The work in the mm. strategic system is ambiguous. It's longer term. It's more politically uh, harried and arriving at that higher altitude can be dangerous. And so the best thing to do is to cling to the work that made me successful before. Uh, and then inadvertently you create compression in the organization where people are now feeling micromanaged or feeling like they don't get the chance to make the decisions they should make. Um, I often think organizations are like the game show, whose decision is it anyway? Um, <laughs> and people one. are looking around wondering, wondering, well, who gets them? And so that no decision gets made. So you, you know, people not playing at the right level, mm-hmm. um, par- paralyze the organization from action. Wow. Well, I think this is a really good segue into your book, your number one Amazon uh, bestseller, Rising to Power, that you wrote. Now, that specifically, I think that's with when you look at the 10-year longitudinal study that you did as far as managers and people moving on up, why they're not successful with that. And that sounds like that's uh, what you just said is probably one of the reasons why people aren't successful in those the change as they ascend up the ladder of, of management. A great segue, James. And yes, well, we, this became personal when I got a phone call one day from a young man who had been part of a, a transformational journey my, my firm had worked on, and he had distinguished himself as a great leader, somebody with great promise. Everybody saw him with great potential. And, and so when I saw him in the caller ID, I assumed he was calling to tell me about some of the great things that accomplished, but unfortunately he was calling to tell me he'd been fired. Oh no. And I was shocked. And he wanted... Um, networking help to find a new job. Well, I had barely had time to recover from that call when two hours later, the CEO called me, 
also telling me that I had to let this guy go and a little bit angry that he thought some of the responsibility was mine for not helping prepare him well for the role. And which of course I was devastated by. And so I said, can we come in and investigate? Can we come in and investigate what happened here? And that, that investigation led to a 10 year study only to discover that this poor, very talented man had become a, a statistic. And it turns out that mm. for the last 20 years, we've known that 50 to 60 percent of most executives fail in the first 18 months of those appointments. Wow. And the things that and what we discovered, James, is that the, the, it's a wonder any of them succeed. Given the things that organizations put in their way on the way up in that ascent, uh, we had 2,700 interviews. We had 100 leaders isolated in mid-ascent to see if we could under if we could identify what are the landmines they're stepping in. How could people that were once very promising and talented suddenly be a disaster? Obviously, yeah. Um, and what was terrifying, James, is that it was so preventable. It's all so preventable. Mm. I went back and I went back to the CEO and I apologized and said, you know what? I'll take my responsibility for not helping anticipate some of the things he was going to face. And you and your organization, and not, and not for nothing but your HR community, need to take responsibility for all the landmines you put in his way that could have prevented him his failure. Wow. Um, was he rehired? So, Hopefully he was rehired. I'm not. <laughs> he had, you, know, you know, James, he went on to get a great job. He's doing very well oh, today. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Um, and that company lost a great talent. They didn't have to mm. lose him. Wow. Um, but it, Here's a great example. So when we're hiring executives, we're looking at their resume and we, we ask things like, wow, I see you've turned around a Salesforce before. That's what we need. Or, wow, I see you've built great brands in your career. Or I see that you have turned around a supply chain before. We need that. Well, when you say that to somebody, what you're inferring mm-hmm. is that they have a formula. There's a recipe for success. And I want you to bring that recipe for success here. Mm. Well, now you've implied this mythical mandate. So when I arrive, I now just have to reach back into my bag of tricks and slap that same on this context, right? Without any contextualization, Hmm. without any sense of the reality that if I'm really going to create change here, I have to let this environment change me as much as I have to change it. But if I come here with an understanding that I'm here to change you, that's the setup for disaster. And almost always you see you know, over the first 12 months, you see the executive, you know, meeting with resistance. The formula is not working, so they pound harder. And you see the entire organization backing away. You know, and I think that's such a, that's such a powerful statement because in that inference of saying you've done all these amazing things, yeah, of course, the, the, the person who's applying for the position, they are going to be excited about that. And, and I can see how that would be a complete miscommunication yep. and so much pressure that's put on that person because now if I'm in this probationary period, if there is one, now I really have to prove it. I have to do it. And so that yep. fear factor comes in, the emotionality comes in, and then all logic and all strategy is really out the window. Absolutely. All out the window. Great way to say that, James. And then the, the big one is, of course, you always hear them come in and say, I'm just going to spend the first 90 days just listening and learning the organization. <laughs> I want to get uh, to no. know people before that, right? And then two weeks in, somebody says, so where's your 90-day plan? Uh, right? And then that pressure you talked about yeah. so eloquently really goes out the window. Sure. And now I'm being now I'm now I'm fully into irrational mode. Where yes. I'm yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm launching task forces and I've got committees launched and I brought in armies of consultants and I'm going to look like I came to play. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That, I mean, just even you saying that, I mean, I'm getting stressed out for these people because I mean, that would be so overwhelming, but I can't believe it's over 50% of people around that, that those stats are staggering. Well, of course the recruiters love it because it's an annuity, an annuity for them. And well, that's true. Uh, yeah. But, but it's a, it's tragic <laughs> because James, James, these are great people. These are people with promising talent. They're with families. And the carnage behind this mm. uh, is inexcusable. It's yes. absolutely inexcusable and all preventable. 
The exciting part about the research, as painful as it was to discover the landmines, the exciting part was we were able to isolate what the 50% who are succeeding are doing. What was it that made them rise mm. and thrive and stick? And there were four very pronounced patterns of things they did that distinguished them, that only got them through the tumultuous ascent, but got them to thrive and stick once they were there. Oh, that okay. was that was exciting. So those there were four. One was context, so mm -hmm. they could read the tea leaves. They understood how to read the environment, how to understand how the industry made money, the unique aspects of the company's culture, um, what was happening politically. They could they were astutely aware of context and could adapt to that context and let themselves not go native. But adapt just enough to earn the credibility to introduce change. Mm. Well, because I think that's the thing. If, like we said before, if you just come in and you're making all these changes and you have no idea what you're doing, you're making changes obviously for disaster. So that I mean that makes perfect sense that you're getting to know the culture, you're getting to know really what it is you're hired to do. And, and everybody else sees that disaster coming along before you do. Um, the second one was Brett's. So these people understood that it's at the seams of an organization uh, where, where the magic really happens. So rather than playing first chair, they could move to the conductor's podium and now conduct the whole orchestra. They understood how all the pieces fit together, and they would go and work the seams, including the uh, – let me walk across the boundary into your world and understand how you see my world. Mm. So they build a bridge. Because um, you, let me stop for one second. Because as you're saying that, it makes me think about individuals who are moving up the ladder. They get this new position, and there's that power – differential that they now have, I suppose, or that power up level. And when that happens, they want to really prove themselves. And so yep. how, why wouldn't want to put myself back down to where this other people are? Because in doing that, that takes away from the new power that I have. Is that, is that one of the things you're, which you're discussing as well? Well, so yes, yeah, so that, you know, if you've, if you've grown up, especially in a silo in marketing or in a business mm -hmm. unit or in sales, that's the world, you know, mm -hmm. and that when you, the political dynamics at the top are now such that is that, okay, to, can I walk across and build a bridge to your mm -hmm. scene? Our two departments have to work together really well, but you know, notoriously there's been this rivalry. Can we fix it? But I'm not sure I can trust you or I'm now, oh, I don't yeah. know. If, and so these silos stay more entrenched rather than bridging those seams. Mm -hmm. The third thing these uh, leaders did was they had amazing connections. They uh, could build – these are the people everybody wanted to work for. They had incredible relationships with their bosses, with their peers, and their direct reports. These are the, they were trusted. They were – they clearly – people clearly knew that my success was on your agenda. I knew you had my back. You weren't just out for yourself. Wow. And lastly – they could make, they could construct amazing choices. They knew what level of data, intuition, and uh, others they needed to put into a choice, and they were not afraid to say no. So many executives struggle mm. with the notion of limiting people's choices and setting priorities because they don't want to disappoint people. The biggest abuse of power we found in our research was not the abuse of power for self-interest or self-absorption. Hmm. Yes, we see examples of immorality and sure. um, unethical. That was not it. The biggest abuse of power was abandoning it. Wow. People were afraid to use the power that came with their role for fear of being seen as a power monger or the alienation that comes with making hard choices, and so they didn't use it at all. So these people could make hard choices. They understood that leadership is the ability to dis disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. And they were able to make hard choices to focus the organization to ensure everybody could succeed. The hard thing about those four patterns, mm -hmm. James, was that these people were good at all of them. So we, I made, I made my research team do 99 different regression analyses that were getting <laughs> because I didn't want to have, I wanted to say, can't, isn't three out of four. Okay. Yeah, what exactly. if they're good at two and they have to learn a couple, <laughs> but it was, that's three out of four got you the B team, got you failure. Wow. So the great news about these four patterns is they're all learnable. 
Um, waiting till your first vice president's assignment to learn them is probably, <laughs> yeah. probably not a, probably not not a good idea. Time, yeah. But yeah. They, you, they can all be learned and, de and developed, and organizations can cultivate these in their leaders long before they need to appoint them to bigger roles. You know, and I think this is such relevant information. You know, I can actually think of so many people right now. In fact, there's a person um, I'm going to be talking to tomorrow who is moving in a senior management position and is it's concerned about this. So everything you're saying, I can't wait to just be like, hey, you need to go buy this book, Rising to Power. <laughs> you know, so I think it's, it's so ni nice to hear that these things are learnable. You know, obviously the most difficult thing is, is I think to have all, all four things working in concert. But I think that's also a learning curve. Most people probably can't read this book and throw all those things together. So I think that's why it is so good to start this now as opposed to when you are up further up the ladder. Absolutely, James. And the, the, the hard thing is we say to leaders, they're not really four things. They're really one thing with four parts. Oh, that's better. Um, that's a better way to reframe you, it. You really can't have breath without context. You mm -hmm. really can't have connection without choice. You really can't make hard choices unless you know the context in which you're making those choices, right? So they work very interdependently. Um, you can you can isolate some of the skills that go with each of the four of them to develop for the purposes of learning them and develop but them. But sure. to your point, they really are working in concert with each other, um, and you have to see them that way. It's it, they're harder to develop uh, at the top simply because you're in a fishbowl. Everybody's watching you yeah. learn them. Yeah, and, and that, that fear of failure as well, I'm sure, really resonates too. Well, it's so visible, right? Mm -hmm. This is public now. This is not you know, private. Mm. Yeah. Well, Ron, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. My gosh, this, this time just literally flew by. I could talk with you for so much longer. But if my listeners want to find out more information about you, about your business, about all the amazing books that you've written, where will they find this information online? Uh, thanks for asking, James. You can come visit us at www.navalent.com. Uh, and you can find all kinds of articles, blogs, research there. You can find me at Twitter at, at Ron Carucci, R-O-N-C-A-R-U-C-C-I. Um, you, if you want to come and get our free ebook on leading transformation in organizations, you can come to www.navalent.com/transformation, and you'll find our. Uh, free ebook there to, to come and download. Excellent. And also your book, Rising to Power. I'm going to put that on my storefront as well. So if my listeners want, aren't able to find it on Amazon, just simply go to jamesmillerlifeology.com. And in the store there, you'll find Ron's book, Rising to Power. Ron Crucci, thank you so much for being a guest on my show today. Ben. It's been such an absolute pleasure talking with you today. James, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I also want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in today. Please subscribe to this radio show through whichever portal you joined with us today, or please go to my website where you may sign up for my free newsletter, watch my YouTube episodes, read the articles I've written specifically for you, or you may enroll in the Lifeology Academy where you can take self-directed courses which will help you simplify and transform your spirit, mind, and body. If you'd like to personally work with me, be a guest on or advertise on this show, simply visit jamesmillerlifeology.com. Be sure to follow me on all social media platforms under the name James Miller Lifeology, except for Twitter, which is James M. Lifeology. Once again, thank you so much for your support and I'll talk to you soon.